Good morning, everyone, and welcome to the first ever episode of Monday Morning Mean Event. I am your host, Kyle, the Mean Event McGee. Today we're going to be discussing UFC 259. It was an exciting night of fights with three title fights and four champions on the card. So let's not waste any more time. Let's dive right into the action. So this night started off right out of the gate on the early prelims with a bang. So the first fight of the night we had... Trevin Jones versus Mario Bautista. Now, this fight um, ended relatively quickly into the second round. Trevin Jones was picking him apart beautifully in the first round, had landed something around, I want to say 19 leg kicks in the first round alone. And in that second round, he just um, almost instantly into the fight, or into the round, I should say, lands a lead right uppercut that puts Bautista down. It was honestly just a beautiful performance, a beautiful uppercut, timed him perfectly. Trevin Jones, I believe now, has won two straight in the UFC. I'd have to look, but I believe he's won two straight in the UFC, so I definitely expect to see him get a step up in competition. He looked phenomenal in this fight, and it was a just a fantastic way to get the prelims going, honestly. Uh, he said he wanted to get set the tone for the night, and I would say he most definitely did. It was a phenomenal performance. And I was very impressed. And, you know, if you want to talk about phenomenal performance, you got to talk about Euros Medic for the next fight. So he faced Alon Cruz, and my lord, I want to say it was 31 strikes he landed, and the fight was only like about a minute and 40 seconds. He did not take a single punch, a single kick, a single knee, elbow, anything in this fight. He fought... You want to talk about a statistically perfect fight. This was a statistically perfect fight. I don't know if he missed a strike, but every strike he landed was a significant strike, and he did not get hit with a single strike back. That is an absolutely phenomenal way to make your UFC debut, and I'm going to be keeping a close eye on his career going forward at lightweight. You know, Anytime you get an exciting prospect at lightweight, it's... It's just phenomenal. That weight class is already so stacked. So seeing what he's going to do once the level of competition gets raised, I think is going to be very, very interesting. Um, you know, I mean, but but what more can you say about that? If, if you land over 30-some-odd strikes, I think it might have even been over 40, now that I think about it. But you land that many strikes without your opponent landing one on you and the fight's over. That's, that's impressive. Um, it wasn't you know, one shot knockout power. It was, he he put it on him with multiple shots and just put him away so fast. Alon Cruz got overwhelmed so quickly. You could tell from the first significant strike that actually landed, he was rocked and he was just never able to recover. So props to Euros Medic on a fantastic debut. After that, you had Amanda Lemos versus Livia Souza. Uh, again, just... This fight card started off with five straight finishes, and this one was no exception. We had another first-round TKO, this time for Amanda Lemos. Lemos just picked her apart standing up. Souza had no answer for her. She ends up dropping her, follows her to the ground, and, you know, the commentators, Joe Rogan and Daniel Cormier, were saying she needs to just stand up. This is a risky move, and uh, the minute that... Sosa even went for a leg. The discussion was that Lemos was in danger and that she was playing with fire. But watching that fight, the leg, she had her leg below the knee. She was never really in any danger and was slowly working her way around to get her leg out and get on top again, which she did. Um, I, I think just because someone goes for a leg lock doesn't necessarily mean you're in danger when. They're, they're not in a good position to get it anyway. If she was, you know, above the knee and had a good hold, I would be worried. But she had a pretty loose hold on Lemos' leg to begin with. And uh, this was just the beginning of kind of an entire night where the commentary, I, I would say, definitely irked me a little bit. Um, I'll get into that more with some of the other fights, especially on uh, the main card. As well as the main event, especially. Um, and I'm sure a lot of people who watched that fight would probably already agree. But the commentary during the main event was atrocious. And it, it's been that way for a while. 
But, yeah, the impressive performance from Amanda Lemos. Souza was not in this fight for a single moment. Um, yeah, just phenomenal technical striking, good Muay Thai stance. You could tell Souza had no idea what to do with the striking that was being thrown at her or, or what to do back. So I think Limosh will probably take her spot in the top 15. Be excited to see her take on another top 15 to top 10 fighter next and see what happens with her. Then in the welterweight division, we had Sean Brady versus Jake Matthews. Now, Jake Matthews ended up landing some good strikes early on and then jumped for a guillotine, and that was the end of it for him. Sean Brady just smothered him once he got on top. He passed a side control as soon as... Uh, Matthews went for that guillotine, and he just was dominant and smothering on top. It actually reminded me of the Islam Makachev-Drew Dober fight from the main card, which I'll get to in a little bit, but these were almost identical as far as fight goes. Once, once Brady got Jake Matthews to the ground and saw how much he controlled him, he chose to go that way the rest of the fight. And just absolutely overwhelmed him and smothered him on the ground. There was nothing that Matthews could do from the bottom. And, you know, you're talking about Sean Brady, a guy who made his UFC debut and beat Court McGee. Um, he's actually 4-0 in the UFC after Saturday. And he's 14-0 in his career right now. They mentioned on commentary he said he would like to follow the same career path as George St. Pierre. Now, obviously... Those are high shoes to live up to, but, you know, if you're going to set a goal, why not go for it? And this guy is definitely going for it. Starting your career off 14-0 and and winning the way this guy is winning is impressive. Controlled him into the third round and ended up setting up an arm triangle, and it almost looked to me like Jake Matthews just kind of accepted what was happening and gave up. He was in half guard, and, um, you know, Sean Brady starts working the pass, and I noticed that. Matthews just kind of opens his legs up and almost lets it ha- lets him pass over and then immediately taps. But, you know, props to Matthews. He hung in there for a little while. Uh, unfortunately, the best moment in the fight to- for him uh, ended up kind of biting him because he went for that guillotine and it just was all downhill from there. Honestly, I think he's lucky he didn't get Von Flew choked in the first round. He held that guillotine from side control on way, way too long. Um, just, you know, if you have a guy who's got his arm around your head in that position, you might be in trouble. Where he was lucky was that Brady's arms was between his legs. If they weren't, he could have easily gone for a Von Flu choke. And it's, it's just weird to me. We see this on a constant basis where these, you know, supposed to be high-level fighters. Uh, you know, they made it to the UFC. They should be at least decent-level fighters. Uh, going to the ground going for a guillotine, ending up in side control on the bottom, and holding on to these guillotine chokes. You know, OSP has put how many people to sleep or made how many people tap just from that alone with the Von Flew choke. You know, it, you can also set yourself up for an arm triangle in that position. It's just so bizarre to me um, that that continues to happen. That's something that, you know, a lot of light belt, white belts learn in the gym. is uh, If you hold on to that guillotine and they get to your side, they're... They're going to choke you pretty bad. I, I learned that lesson as a white belt. I know uh, I've seen a lot of white belts learn that lesson, and you know most people don't go for it again, so it's very odd to see that happen in a fight. Um, I think it's happened one time in the UFC where a guy tapped out to it, and you know everybody was questioning it, even the guy who had it. it it's just not a position where you're going to have a lot of leverage, and it puts you in the position to get caught in several submissions, so not something you want to see from a guy fighting in the UFC on the ground where he's, you know, continuing holding that. After that, though, wow. Okay, so now we're getting to the absolute best fight of the night, and this is no exaggeration. If you want to talk about fight of the night, it is Kennedy and Zechku versus Carlos Olberg. This fight started off so high-paced, and Kennedy was not in it at first. Uh, as soon as the fight starts, Carlos Olberg, who is from City Kickboxing Gym, which is where Alexander Volkanovsky and Dan Hooker and Adesanya train, and apparently he's been getting a lot of props from them, a uh, light heavyweight fight, he comes out and kind of stings Inzechukwu pretty early, 
actually had landed over 20 significant strikes to none as the fight started, and Olberg was just kind of picking him apart. He was picking his shots really well. He was ripping to the body. I, I was One thing I really liked from Olberg in this fight was his work to the body. He was absolutely ripping his shots to the body. It was it was beautiful to watch, and I was really enjoying it. He was mixing up his striking really well with his leg kicks, body kicks, head strikes, throwing punches to the body. He, he was really keeping Nzechukwu guessing pretty early. But one thing that was pretty noticeable about Nzechukwu right out of the gate was everything he landed was powerful. Every time he landed a punch, it wasn't it wasn't the crispest striking, but every time he landed a single punch, you saw it had him think it had uh, Olberg thinking, and you know this is a guy who's three and zero heading into this fight, coming off of a knockout win on the Contender Series, so he's obviously riding high. He trains with Israel Adesanya, but you could see every time that Nzechukwu landed, it it got him thinking. And this was Nzechukwu's first fight since August of 2019. You know, and it, obviously it looked like he was knocking a little bit of ring rust off as the fight started. But man, every punch this guy landed, you could tell it was changing the complexion of the fight. And Carlos Olberg put out a high output of strikes for a light heavyweight fighter, really for any weight class fighter, but especially for a light heavyweight fighter. Uh, when the first round was over, between leg kicks and body kicks and his body strikes and his head strikes, he had thrown 115 strikes by the end of the first round. That is an incredible amount of output, especially for someone that fights at 205 pounds. These are not small guys. You know, Kennedy and Zetchiku, six foot five. You know, Carlos Olberg looked pretty pretty muscular in there. Um, this is that's not necessarily the best strategy to be going all out like that. I think he might have gotten overexcited and you know, he got Kennedy hurt a little bit early and I think he just kept going and I thought maybe he thought he was going to get Nzechukwu out of there but Nzechukwu was a tough dude. He was taking those rips to the body. He was taking these punches to the head and while you could tell they were hitting him and they were having an effect, it wasn't fully phasing him. He was still in the fight he kept his guard high, and he just kind of weathered the storm. It got to the second round, and it started off, you know, looking the exact same, despite how tired Olberg looked like he was. He was ripping to the body. He was throwing leg kicks. He was throwing body kicks. I really liked what I th saw from Carlos Olberg in this fight. I thought we were seeing a star in the making, but Nzechku just kept landing and kept landing, and this fight was just so back and forth. And then eventually in the second round, a uh, little over the midway point, about three minutes in, and Zechku just throws this bomb of a right hook and puts him down, puts Olberg down, hits a few shots, and the referee calls it great stoppage. And Zechku with a phenomenal performance. Um, you could tell he had to weather the storm in this fight. And I was really impressed with the grit he showed. He's The amount of heart, the chin he's got, he took a lot of shots to the body the head, the leg, like he took a lot of shots just in general in that first round and a half alone. But, you know, like I said, when you're that size to be throwing that many strikes that fast, you're probably not going to have the cardio to keep up that pace. You know, you see that at lower weight classes as well. Sometimes guys who are, you know, no bigger than me will keep up a high pace that they just realistically cannot keep up. It's asking a lot of yourself to put that much output out. You know, you've got guys who, you know, like Colby Covington at 170 pounds, he's good with that level of output, but not everybody can keep that up. And I think, you know, Olberg will go back to the drawing board. I think he'll definitely be back. This was only his fourth pro fight. Maybe being in the UFC will end up being a little too much too soon, but only time will tell. Uh, I don't see the UFC releasing him for this one. It was fight of the night. And it definitely was the fight of the night. Uh, going back and watching it, it's a fight that I'd probably rewatch again just for entertainment's sake. But man, what a performance by both these guys! You know, Cole, Carlos Olberg hopefully learns from this, keeps his guard up higher next time, and comes back. And Zechiku, I, I can't say enough about how tough this guy is. And man, he has got some power in those hands. So. You know, I know he's got a loss to Paul Craig on his record, but I would like to see him get a step up in competition in his next fight. 
hopefully he stays healthy now and doesn't miss as much action. The African Savage proved that his nickname is fitting in that fight. So, my favorite fight of the night by far. Next up was another smothering performance, and it was Tim Elliott versus Jordan Espinoza. Tim Elliott has got to be one of the most awkward fighters I've ever seen. His movement, everything about him when he's on his feet is so awkward. And this is not an insult, it's a compliment. Um, he's so awkward that a lot of fighters don't really know what to do. I mean, this guy, he wanted to get, well, so apparently he wanted to work on his striking, but you could tell at one point he decided to get the fight to the ground, and he didn't shoot for a double leg, no. He waited and timed Espinosa throwing a head kick, and Espinosa a very fast and explosive guy. He timed Espinosa throwing a head kick, Roll, shoulder rolled under, gave it a boxing shoulder roll, lifted his shoulder up, and took him down from that. I don't see that happening very often. I see guys catching kicks and taking them down. You don't see guys performing a shoulder roll to dodge a head kick and using that shoulder roll to get a guy to the ground. Just absolutely bizarre things that I don't think you can prep for in the gym. Not a lot of guys are going to go in the gym and go, hey, um... I'm going to throw a head kick. I want you to shoulder roll under it, and I want to try and avoid getting taken down. That's not something I think you can prepare for. That's not something a lot of guys do. Tim Elliott is going to give you a lot of awkward looks that you're not going to be able to get into the gym. I believe he's 18-11-1 and 11 and 1 after this fight, and, and keep in mind, this guy's you know record, it, it doesn't sound very good. You know, you hear 18-11-1, and, 11 and 1, or sorry, 17-11-1, and 11 and 1, uh, so it is 17-11-1. You hear that and you're like, wow, that's really not good. Uh, one knockout loss, five submission losses, five decision losses. But when you listen to his loss, it, you've got, you know, Brandon Royval, who's looked great in the UFC. You've got Askar Askarov, who I will get to in a little bit. You've got Davison Figueredo, who's the champ. You've got Ben Nagayan, who was, you know, just phenomenal at the time. I'm not sure if he's still in the UFC or not. I don't believe he is. Yeah, no, he, he is not. He was 4-3 and three in the UFC, but he was still pretty good at the time. Demetrius Johnson. Uh, then in his first UFC run, Ali Bagautinov, Joseph Benavidez, and Zach Makovsky, and John Dodson. You know, he, he lost his first two profiles, but he's not lost to any lower-tier fighters his entire career. You know, he's he's got some quality wins as well, and he gave Demetrius Johnson a tough night out when they fought. Um... You know, he just couldn't get anything going against Tim Elliott. This is the type of fighter Tim Elliott is. And Tim Elliott smothered Espinosa. This was another smothering performance. Um, there was a little bit of uh, controversy at the end of the second round. Tim Elliott was, had him on the ground up against the cage and uh, made a comment about, you choked your girl in 2018, uh, you know, you're a woman beater. And told him that she messaged him, you know, and uh, Espinoza said, you know, you don't know the whole story. He said, I know enough. Um, referee Mark Smith actually warned him uh, to watch, you know, what he was talking about. He was right by the camera and there was mics there and everything was picked up by him. Uh, and Tim Elliott did actually elaborate in the press conference that he didn't mean for the entire world to hear that. And that that was meant to be between... He and Jordan Espinoza. Now, I'm not going to comment on the nature of these allegations, um, but it was just, it was very interesting to hear that in the middle of the fight, and it, it kind of put a dark tone to the fight. Um, I'm not going to lie. Like I said, I'm not going to comment on the allegations because I, you know, I've I, I've not seen any, I've not looked into it, I've not looked into the case, I've not seen if there is a case against Espinoza. You know, I don't want to potentially slander a guy who may be 100% innocent, and I don't want to defend someone who might be 100% guilty. So, um, But it is definitely a part of the story of that fight is that he was, you know, Tim Elliott is, is grinding his forearm into this guy's nose and across his throat, and you could tell watching it, it was, it was not just about controlling him. He was trying to punish Jordan Espinoza, and I, and I I guess you know this might whatever messages he received may have been the reason he did it. But you know it was just a smothering and a, just a grueling fight by Tim Elliott. I mean, having someone take their forearm 
not even worrying so much about grounding pound, but taking their forearm and just grinding down on your nose with it. Just absolutely brutal. And then in the third round, you know, takes him down, smothers him again, ends up getting busted open with an elbow from the bottom by Jordan Espinoza. And what does Tim Elliott do? He's he starts pressing his head into Jordan Espinoza's face and rubbing his blood off on him. It was just a smothering, one-sided, dominant performance. One of the judges actually gave it 30-25, Tim Elliott. Tim Elliott was absolutely phenomenal in this one. I, I cannot understate that one enough. Um, like I said, that, that conversation kind of put a dark tone on it, but man, when I tell you that Tim Elliott is definitely the, and I mean this as a compliment, Tim Elliott is the gatekeeper of the division. If you cannot get through him, you're not going to beat guys in the top five, top ten. You're not ready for them yet. And you know what? That's great for Tim Elliott. You know, I, I, I understand he would like to be champion, and, you know, he's only getting better, I would like to think. So you never know. But I, I do believe he is definitely going to be the gatekeeper for that division. I think he's just exciting enough for the UFC to keep him around, win, lose, or draw. So I, I always look forward to watching Tim Elliott fight. He's such an awkward guy. You know, he said he wanted to work on his striking in this one, but, you know, when you can put in a performance like that, who cares whether or not you got to show off your striking? Phenomenal way to end the early prelims. Then we got to the main preliminary card, and holy crap, if this one didn't get started off to a bang. It was a... Another flyweight bout. This was this night was kind of a uh, flyweight and bantamweight showcase. You know, you started the night off with a bantamweight fight. You had the last early prelim was a flyweight fight. And then you had the first prelim was a flyweight fight. You had the next prelim was supposed to be a flyweight. It was catchweight of 127 uh, due to a weight miss by Askarov. And then you had two bantamweight fights after that. So the prelim was flyweight, flyweight, bantamweight, bantamweight. And then on the main card, you had the bantamweight title. Uh, but anyway, we get this fight with Kai Carfranch and Rogerio Bontorin, and uh, probably mispronounced that again, I'm sorry. But Rogerio uh, gets him down to the ground early, takes his back so fast into this fight. It, it looked really bad for Kai Carfranch. Um, you know, another city kickboxing guy. We've, we've seen him in a few fights in the UFC. I, I do believe he's the number eight fighter in the world at flyweight. His last fight was the submission loss to Brandon Roy Val. Um, you know, his only losses in the USC are Brandon Moreno and Brandon Roy Val heading into this fight. And, you know, he gets he gets his back taken so fast and just throughout the entire first round, Rogerio is going going for naked chokes. And this was another part where the commentary kinda irked me. It was anytime Ogerio got his arm across. Uh, Joe Rogan or Daniel Cormier was like, would say, this fight's over. Um, it's over. He's going to get him. And it, it wouldn't even be locked in. And Kai Car France was defending beautifully. He was blocking the hands. He was grabbing the hand that he was trying to lock with and getting it. And, you know, he'd be across the jaw. And as soon as he would lock his hands together, they would say it was over. He, I never once thought that Kai Car France was fully in danger. It was definitely concerning at times, but there was never the, oh, he's definitely seconds away from tapping. He did not once allow that arm to get under his chin. Amazing job defensively, and again, like I said, the commentary team, just every time that arm got across, this fight's over. They were getting a little bit too antsy over any submission attempt in the night, and Kaikar France, you know, was getting controlled badly, but did a phenomenal job defending, did everything he needed to do. Everything he did, he was doing it right. And then they get back up to their feet. And Kai Car France just starts tagging him and rocks him and ends up putting him to sleep with five seconds left in the first round. It was controlled the entire first round, and he just needed a few seconds on the feet to put this fight away. Now, there was a little bit of controversy at the end of this one. Herb Dean, to me, clearly stopped the fight. And then, I, I don't know if it was the adrenaline, but Kai Car France seemed to think that maybe Herb Dean hadn't stopped the fight. And he ran over like he was going to throw a hammer fist to Hogerio on the ground. And Herb Dean stopped him and was like, no, this fight's over. And 
you know, Rogerio stood up at that point and, and threw his math guard at Kaikar France out of frustration. Now, they ended up shaking hands and hugging. Everything was good. But the commentator, Joe Rogan, starts talking about how this is proof that Herb Dean's slipping and, you know, he, he needs to make it clear whether or not a fight's over. Kaikar France called this fight himself. And Herb Dean didn't make it clear, so he had to go back in. If you go and watch, and, and John Anik even spoke to Herb Dean's defense. Herb Dean walked over and grabbed Kaikara France. If you are in the middle of a fight and a ref grabs you and pulls you away from a fighter, the fight is over. That is what he's telling you. This was not an example of Herb Dean slipping. Herb Dean has had some bad stoppages over the last few years. He's had some bad moments, but this was not one of them. And Joe Rogan immediately went in on him being a bad moment and said, Kai Car France stopped the fight himself. No. Herb Dean stopped this fight. Kai Car France, with the adrenaline, may not have realized what happened. I will give him the benefit of the doubt. But to say that this is proof that Herb Dean was slipping shows that you weren't paying attention. But phenomenal comeback for Kai Car France. Next up, though, the catchweight bout. So, unfortunately, Askar Askarov missed weight for this fight. Uh, he's the number three bantamweight in the world, heading in to face the number two bantamweight, or sorry, flyweight, number two, number three flyweight in the world. My apologies. Um, number three flyweight in the world, heading in to face Joseph Benavidez, the number two flyweight in the world, and a flyweight legend. Um, just an absolute legend of the sport. You know, he's, he's had some rough... Rough outings in his recent fights between the um, two, yes, the two losses to Figueredo. You know he's he's twenty eight and eight in his career, and when when you look at his record, his losses he had the TKO loss to Davis and Figueredo, and the only reason the rematch happened was because Figueredo missed weight. Then they rematch, and Figueredo just puts an absolute beating on Joseph Benavides and puts him to sleep in the first round. You know, he's got losses to Sergio Pettis, two to Demetrius Johnson, um, and then, you know, two to Dominic Cruz. So, realistically, he's only ever lost to the top of the top guys until these past few years. You know, he lost that fight to Sergio Pettis by split decision and then, you know, went on a tear, you know, TKO'd Alex Perez, won a decision on Dustin Ortiz, TKO'd Formiga, which was amazing. Then he had the two Figueredo fights, and then he fought Askar Askarov, and this fight did not go well for him. This was not close from the beginning of the fight to the end of the fight. Askar Askarov smothered him standing, smothered him on the ground, you know, was lifting him up and slamming him to the ground. He was ragdolling Benavidez when he wanted to take him to the ground, and he was absolutely picking him apart standing up. Askar Askarov is an elite flyweight contender, and hopefully he can get the weight management under control. Um, you know, I, I'd hate to see him not be able to make this weight class and, and not be able to reach his full potential because of it. But what a lopsided showcase. And it's really just a, a sad moment for uh, the flyweight division in a way. You know, it's exciting because we've got new exciting contenders. You know, Figueredo is bringing excitement to this division like no other. You know, Demetrius Johnson, absolute flyweight goat, but he did not bring the excitement that Davidson Figueroa brought brings. And that that title fight with Brandon Moreno was absolutely incredible. You know, Brandon Moreno, Davidson Figueroa, two bona fide flyweight stars after the routing in December, and now Askar Askarov with his last performance is 100% in the mix. You know, he's got a loss or sorry, a draw with Brandon Moreno. Other than that. He's undefeated. He's so he, you've got this is easily the number two guy in the world behind Brandon Moreno. You could even argue number one tied with Brandon Moreno because these two fought to a draw, and, and Brandon Moreno actually just fought to a draw with Figueredo, but uh, that draw also was due to a point reduction. So you know. Figueredo would have won that fight, but it was an incredible fight. So this flyweight division is getting really exciting, and we're getting new stars. But the the sad moment comes in for the flyweight division when you realize that you know the Benavidez, this absolute legend, and you know aside from Mighty Mouse, one of the founding fathers of the division, one of the reasons, honestly, one of the main reasons, if not the main reason, the UFC made the flyweight division was for Joseph Benavidez. So to see him on this downswing of his career, you know, he's now got three straight losses. 
I don't believe he's ever had two straight losses in an entire career, let alone three straight. So to see him at this point, and honestly, he just doesn't look like he's really got much left to give to this sport. And it's it's really sad to say. All, all he was throwing was looping punches, and it's getting to where, you know, all the top fighters that he's fighting anymore are seeing it coming. You know, it's it's we're past the era of guys just throwing looping overhands and being able to connect. And unfortunately, he has not moved on from that. But... You know, I, I would personally like to see Benavidez retire at this point. It, it's a sad end, but I, I do not believe he's got really much left to offer to the division. Uh, but props to Askar Askarov for an amazing, amazing performance. Next up on the prelims was Kyler Phillips versus Song Yadong. Song Yadong coming off the controversial decision win over Marlon Chito Vera. Kyler Phillips looking great so far in his UFC career and... Another spectacular performance, um, almost kind of like Carlos Olberg earlier in the night with the variety and the striking, but, you know, just on another level. He's still in spinning wheel kicks, his footwork. He was avoiding the power strikes of Song Yadon. The first two rounds, absolutely one-sided. There was, there was no question to me. It was a fun fight, but there was no question to me. Kyler Phillips is... Is taking this dude and he is just picking him apart from bell to bell. And, you know, you get to the third round. Um, unfortunately, Kyler Phillips got a little bit more uh, flat footed and he's kind of standing in front of him and kind of allowed Song to steal the third round. But, you know, thankfully he was up two rounds, nothing. So I think he was almost kind of coasting at that point. But it was an absolutely phenomenal and dynamic performance put together by Kyler Phillips. Kyler Phillips is now easily going to be in the top 15 in that division. You know, he'll probably take Song Yudong's spot. Honestly, I wouldn't mind seeing a fight with him and Marlon Chito Vera next. You know, um, similar rankings. And Kyler Phillips has just looked absolutely impressive so far. Marlon Vera, after his win over Sean O'Malley, took a big step up in competition against Jose Aldo. And he looked every bit the part. You know, he... He lost the fight, but it was two rounds to one. It was a pretty close fight up until the third round when Aldo controlled him on the ground. So I could also see them keeping Marlon fighting a higher level fighter than you know somebody who's just now breaking into the top 15, but I do think that'd be a fun one. And then next up, we had Dominic Cruz versus Casey Kinney. Uh, make no mistake about it, Dominic Cruz is back. He looked every bit the part, and Casey Kenny, you know, said he's he's slow, he's old, and I, I know how to figure out his footwork. I've seen it before. You know, it's it's a changing the guard. It's not going to work anymore. And you know, you it's you can say that all you want until you actually get into the cage with Dominic Cruz. And what we saw was a guy who had no idea what to do about the movement of Dominic Cruz. It's just so it, he's another one of those like Timmy El, Tim Elliott's where. You can't emulate that in training. Um, he is such an awkward guy with his movement. He's developed his own footwork style, and it works so well for him. You know, I, I thought Cruz looked phenomenal in this fight. His movement looked great. I think the only thing that might have hindered him was the smaller cage, but Cruz absolutely picked Casey Kinney apart and looked great doing it. Now, some controversy came in, though. Uh, personally, I had the fight... Three rounds to zero. I think you could argue maybe giving Casey Kenny one of the rounds. But I had it three rounds to zero, and a, a, a lot of media outlets, um, journalists seemed to have the same thought. And it was actually a split decision. One of the judges scored it for Casey Kenny. And, you know, this is just an absolute common problem with judging nowadays is there was no way in the world that was a split decision. But yet it continues happening. And then in his post-fight interview, uh, Dominic Cruz goes in there, and uh, when asked what's next for him, says he wants to fight Hans Molenkamp from Monster Energy in a charity fight. You know, and he says that Hans Molenkamp is holding fighters hostage because, you know, that's the only way that they can get their sponsorships, and this and that. I thought it was very odd, and, you know, Joe Rogan cut him off, but... Uh, honestly, looking at the, the rankings, uh, you know, Dominic Cruz 
fought an unranked guy, and he looked great. I would like to see him take a step forward. I, I would like to see him fight either, you know, uh, Pedro Munoz or Frankie Edgar. Looking at the rankings, I think those would be good, very good, fun fights for him. Um, I could even see an argument for Jimmy Rivera. Uh, I know Cruz is coming off a loss, but or, sorry, Cruz is coming off a win, and Rivera is coming off a loss. But just going on the rankings, I think those three fights make the most sense. And obviously, with Frankie Edgar versus Dominic Cruz, that'd be an absolute legends fight. And who wouldn't want to see that one? Then we got to the main card, and a stacked main card from top to bottom. It was start of the night off, light heavyweight bout. Tiago Santos, Alexander Rakic. Um, this was not the fight I expected it to be. I, I felt like both fighters were a little tentative of each other. They, they both very clearly seemed to respect the other one striking and, and kind of held back in that respect. I also think Santos, you know, with the nam- damage to his knee he took in the John Jones fight, and then, you know, the Glover Teixeira fight, how every time he rocked Teixeira, he ended up on his back, and it actually ended up making it a long night for him. I, I almost felt like he was a little gun-shy due to that. Uh, Alexander Rakic, you know, was picking his shots very well. He, he was fighting the fight he needed to fight against a guy like Tiago Santos. And, you know, it, com- it comes away with the unanimous decision victory. Santos looked a uh, little annoyed when the decision was announced, but I thought it was pretty clear-cut that Alexander Rakic had won that fight. I I don't think that there was any controversy with them picking him as the winner of that one. Um, Yeah, I don't know what's happened to Tiago Santos here recently, but hopefully he's able to sort out whatever's going on. Alexander Rakic, you know, it's maybe not the most exciting way, but this guy is slowly but surely moving his way up the rankings. I guess after the fight, he told Dana White he's the new face of the light heavyweight division. Uh, I would disagree. I would I would say uh, one Jan Blahovic uh, definitely holds that crown so far. Uh, as far as what's next for Alexander Rakic, you know, Dana White already said Glover Teixeira gets the next shot at Jan Blahovic. So I say Alexander Rakic should fight the winner of Dominic Reyes and Jiri Prochaska and you know, the, the winner of that gets the winner of Glover and Jan Blahovic. Um I think that is the logical next step, looking at those guys' careers. You know, Reyes, uh, honestly, you know, he got knocked out by Blahovic, so I think for him it might be a little tougher to get that title fight. But I think if Rakic, you know, gets by him or Yuri Prochaska, depending on whoever wins that, I think he'll definitely earn a title fight off of that, and I think Prochaska definitely would. Um off of that as well but you know what Rockage did everything he needed to do in that fight it wasn't the most exciting but he got the job done and at the end of the day when you're a fighter it's kind of like the surreal gone fight against Jarzinho Rosenstrike when you are trying to make your way up to the championship and you can see that you are outworking this guy and maybe it's not the most exciting why put your career your payday and everything on the line to make the fans go, ooh, thank God he swung for the fences. You know, it's why, why risk getting knocked out? A guy like Tiago Santos, even when he's not fighting the way he usually does, all he's got to do is hit you one time, and he can put you down. Rockage fought a great fight for the opponent he had, and he absolutely deserved the win and definitely deserves a step up in the rankings. I think he'll probably now be... Uh, arguably number two in the division behind Glover Teixeira, maybe number three behind Reyes, depending on how they move the rankings around. But yeah, next up was Islam Makachev versus Drew Dober. And, you know, uh, congratulations, lightweights. Uh, Khabib didn't leave. He's just someone else. Islam Makachev reminds me so much of Khabib, but I think he might be a better pure wrestler than Khabib. When it comes to the octagon, you know, Khabib did his best work against the cage. Uh, in the center of the octagon, he could get people down, but, you know, Khabib's strategy, there was no secret to it. He's going to push you up against the fence, and from there, he's going to take you down, and from there, he's going to maul you. Um, he's at the very least going to run you towards the fence as he's taking you down. <clears throat> Makachev 
was taking Drew Dober down in the center of the octagon and was just absolutely controlling him. There was nothing Drew Dober could do to stop the ground control or the takedowns. And once he got him there, you know, it was all Makachev. Drew Dober had no answers for him. And then in the third round from half guard, Makachev ends up, you know, having an, he has an arm triangle from side control and he's not even passing. He's just putting a tremendous amount of shoulder pressure down and uh, Drew Dober ends up tapping. Uh, Phenomenal job by Islam Makachev. You know, props to Drew Dober for being the one to step up and actually take this fight. There's a lot of top lightweights really not wanting to take this fight. And watching him fight and, you know, seeing the similarities between him and Khabib and, you know, Khabib being his head co- one of his head coaches now, it's it's hard to blame people, but, man, it's going to be hard to deny him now. After the fight, he called out Tony Ferguson and said, you know, Tony has been talking a lot of trash about Khabib, and he's still continued to, even after Khabib's retired, so I want to shut his mouth. And you know what? I wouldn't mind seeing that, honestly. I also wouldn't mind if we went ahead and finally uh, rebook him versus Rafael Dos Anjos. I, I really and truly believe Islam Makachev is a star in the making for the lightweight division. And, you know, I, I think, I hope Dana White accepts Khabib's retirement soon and that lightweight division can get moving forward again as far as the championship goes. And I think Islam Makachev is going to be one of those guys in the mix. And just, he's going to have to fight a top guy next. I love the idea of him and Tony Ferguson. Um, I, I do think, based off of this fight and based off of Tony's last fight, that it might be a terrible matchup for Tony. But I, you know, if we can't get Khabib versus Tony, why not get the next best thing? Um, but I, I also re- really do like the idea, personally, of just because, you know, Tony's coming off of two straight losses, I, I do like the idea of throwing Islam in there with. Dos Anjos, they were supposed to fight last year on two different occasions. On both occasions, it got canceled. Um, you know, Dos Anjos ended up fighting and beating Paul Felder. So I say, let's go ahead and do that fight. I think that's a great fight. Uh, I Let's give Tony Ferguson uh, a different matchup, see if he can get back to the drawing board. But I also, realistically, with the fact that we never got Khabib and... Tony, I, I would tell you, do not be surprised if Islam versus Tony is up next. All right, now getting to the controversial fight of the night, Aljamain Sterling versus Pyotr Jan for the Bantamweight Championship. So the story going into this fight was a pretty easy story to tell. If this fight is standing, it's going to go in the favor of Pyotr Jan. If it gets to the ground, Aljamain Sterling is probably going to smother him. Now, the question hitting it was, which one is going to happen? You know, can Aljamain impose his will? Or will Pyotr Jan just pick him apart and stop all the takedowns? So early on in the fight, Aljamain Sterling came out with a really high pace, throwing a lot of strikes, a lot of punches, and they weren't power punches. They were more so like kind of pitter-patter punches just to just to keep hitting him and to break through the guard, throwing some head kicks, ends up getting a takedown really early. And from there, he just kind of got sloppy. It almost felt like he was overexcited about the moment. Um, And he, honestly, it was pretty obvious he couldn't keep up the pace that he was setting. He was gassing, you know, he was slowing down relatively quickly. Um, each round, it got more and more obvious how tired he was getting. He, he kept throwing, you know, really, really slow spinning back elbows. And every time he would do it, you know, he would telegraph it so bad that Piotr Jan would just duck down and take his back. You know, he, he dropped him early in the first round after that takedown. Uh, it didn't seem like it hurt Sterling too bad, but... You know, it, he kind of started picking them apart. Uh, Sterling, to his credit, stayed in this fight. He, he never looked like he was fully giving up. Um, but, you know, Piotr Jan was catching his legs and kicking his legs out from underneath him. Sterling was getting to the point where he wasn't setting up his takedowns. You know, he wasn't dropping down and he wasn't changing levels and shooting. He, he got to a point where he was just hunching over at the waist and moving forward to get a takedown. And that is a 
super telegraph takedown. Piotr Jan saw all of them coming. And really, this fight was just getting to the point where it was getting more and more obvious that Sterling is about out of gas and Piotr Jan is about to put him away. Uh, I want to say Sterling was uh, one of 15 on his takedown attempts and just getting picked apart for the most part on the feet. And he would occasionally have his moments where he would come back and look like he was doing good. I personally had it 29-28 Jan after three rounds going into the fourth. Jan was definitely starting to pick up the pace a bit and really starting to put it on Sterling. Sterling was trying, but he just really was not at the point of being able to get much together. It was getting to where Jan would throw a leg kick and Sterling's legs would give out from underneath him. He just was not in this fight anymore. And then he shot for one of those takedowns again where he just kind of bent over and charged forward and he ended up dropping down uh, to a knee. And then came the controversy where Sterling was very clearly a downed opponent. Uh, Jan had wrapped his hands around his head with a Muay Thai plum, and Mark Smith said, do not knee him, he's down. Apparently, Jan turned to his corner and said, can I kick him now? Uh, And they said yes, and he delivered a pretty strong and solid knee to the side of Sterling's head, drooled him right in the temple. Honestly, that was a ridiculously powerful knee, especially from that position, and especially if you don't see it going. Uh, Mark Smith immediately calls a stop to the action. Uh, Ask Sterling if he can continue. I've seen a lot of people take this moment to say that Sterling was faking, uh, and he was just looking for the easy way out. The people who are saying that, I do not believe have ever taken a full force knee to the head. Um, Watching the replay, it looked like that knee hit Sterling right in the temple, So, I think he was rocked pretty badly from that one. I do think, you know, yeah, him being as tired as he was probably added to how hurt he was. You know, I I can tell you from, you know, I've had some amateur boxing matches, some exhibition matches, and I can tell you, you know, when you get hurt when you're fresh versus when you get hurt when you're tired, it is a drastic difference on how much it affects you. Your, Your recovery is off. And, yeah, you know, that probably did have a big effect on it. But I don't believe that that's proof that Aljamain was faking. I just think he was genuinely hurt. Um, to me, re-watching it, that, it was a very blatantly intentional, illegal knee. Um, the, there was no accident. You know, after the fight, Jan released a statement saying he didn't mean to break the rules and that it was a mistake. Um, you know, he might not have meant to break the rules, but he very clearly meant to throw that knee, and he had been warned that the fighter was down. I understand that his coaches told him that he was fine to knee him, but I only have two things to say about that. Uh, number one, his coaches should know better at this stage of the game, and two, as a professional fighter and a champion of the world, Pyotr Jan should know better. He's he's not new to this game. This wasn't his first ever fight coming in with no fight knowledge. This man's a champion of the world. He knows the rule set. He absolutely knew he was dealing with a downed opponent. Um, do I agree that Sterling was stalling? Sure, yeah, he was. He was gassed. But that doesn't excuse Pyotr Jan throwing an illegal knee. I'm seeing all the blame online. Going towards Aljamain Sterling, I am seeing nobody bringing up the fact that Pyotr Jan broke the rules. He cheated. He need a downed opponent. Whether you think that that knee should be legal or not, it is not. That that knee was not legal, and it was very intentional that he threw it, and he had been warned beforehand not to throw it. So to put the blame on Aljamain Sterling about this situation and say he took the cheap way out... No, the person who took the cheap way out was Piotr Jan. He was coasting to a victory. There was absolutely no need in that circumstance to throw the knees, to break the rules. It was an illegal strike, and the only person who should be getting the blame right now is Piotr Jan. Aljamain Sterling won by disqualification, and I heard Joe Rogan saying, this is, you know, he should not be winning the title off of a disqualification. And Daniel Cormier even stepped in and said, yes, Joe, he should. And this was another circumstance where the commentary of Joe Rogan was irking me a bit. And the reason it was irking me, quite honestly, was 
He was picking the narrative of Piotr Jan was winning this fight and deserves to keep the title. I would argue that in the exact opposite. Yes, Piotr Jan was winning that fight and was well on his way to winning that fight. But this man should not be allowed to retain his title off of an intentional illegal strike. That was intentional. This isn't professional wrestling where a disqualification keeps you your title. And I've seen people online going, this is proof that pro wrestling has it right. You know, if you get disqualified, you should keep your title. Well, as somebody who is a pro wrestling fan, let me tell you something about the psychology behind in professional wrestling allowing a champion to retain their title off of disqualification. In pro wrestling, there is a thing called a babyface and a heel. Babyface is a good guy, a heel is a bad guy. What will logically happen is the heel champion, the bad guy champion, will be down and out against the good guy challenger and see no other way out and intentionally break the rules to get himself disqualified so that he can keep his title. It is a way to draw heat on a wrestler. It is a way to make the heel get what is known as heel heat. It is to make the crowd angry with him. The babyface, the guy the crowd is all rooting for, is winning this match and he's finally going to win the championship the way they want him to. And the heel cheats to make sure he keeps it because he wants to hold on to it so badly. That's why it works in professional wrestling is that a psychological tool. In a sport like fighting, when a fighter intentionally uses an illegal strike, he should not be allowed to retain his championship from said illegal strike. That is rewarding the fighter for cheating. Now, with that being said, first time ever in UFC history that a title has changed hands due to a disqualification. Terrible UFC history to make. There will absolutely be a rematch. Sterling released a statement and said, you know, not the way I wanted to win the belt. And I've seen people making comments that, oh, well, he's posting pictures and smiling with the belt. You know, here, here's the thing. He even released a statement about that. And I don't believe people should be judging him for that. But he said, you know, his family, family and friends have told him that they want pictures of him posing with the belt and to, for him to carry himself as a champion because that's how he's carried himself all along. But you know what? He doesn't owe anyone an explanation. Regardless of how he won it, Aljamain Sterling is the UFC bantamweight champion. But guess what? There's going to be a rematch. And despite my feelings on how that fight ended... I do believe Piotr Jan is going to be the favorite, and I do believe Piotr Jan will likely win back his championship. But in the meantime, Aljamain Sterling being champion was the right call. That was absolutely a disqualification. That was not a no contest warranted. It was an illegal knee, and it was an intentional. It wasn't accidental. Now, if Sterling was up and then dropped down as Jan was throwing the knee, it probably would have been a no contest, but Sterling was in the down position. So... I look forward to seeing that rematch. I hope it comes without controversy, and I hope it's able to come as soon as possible. Hopefully, we get a more clear ending in the rematch. Now, heading into the main event. Israel Adesanya versus Jan Blahovich, Champion versus champion for the light heavyweight championship. This was another example where the commentary ignored me, and I'll get into that in a minute. This was this had a big fight feel, and, and I'll be honest, you know, I've seen a lot of people saying that the fight was boring, whatever. I thoroughly enjoyed this fight, and this fight was pretty similar to what I expected from it. Um, you know, Jan Blahovic was not having to worry so much about the movement of Adesanya with the smaller cage, but Adesanya was still trying to pick his strikes. He was slipping a lot of punches from Jan Blahovic, and he was obviously not going to overcommit to a brawl like he like he would with you know, Robert Whitaker or Paula Costa, he, he was very hesitant on the feet, and he was definitely holding himself back. But you think about the legendary Polish power of Jan Blachowicz, you know, I, I think it was a smart move for him to hold back. He was the much smaller guy. Uh, the reason the commentary annoyed me um, in this fight was, and I was somebody who, I'll, I'll be honest with it for you, I, I picked Adesanya to win, and I was rooting for Adesanya, but... Uh, the commentary team, and more specifically Joe Rogan, was after the first few rounds was discussing how Israel Adesanya was outstriking Jan Blachowicz and how he was very clearly winning the fight, and how you know he's he's getting Jan Blachowicz to bite on every feint. But that was the only argument that Joe Rogan was using behind why Jan Blachowicz was being outstruck. But when you look at the numbers, 
Jan Bohovic was outlanding Israel Adesanya in every round. Uh, one thing I was noticing watching it was he was checking leg kicks. Um, he was avoiding the, the shots. In the first two rounds, when Izzy was throwing a jab, they it was not hitting Jan Blahovic. Jan Blahovic was avoiding those strikes just as much as Izzy was avoiding his. But Jan was landing more often. Jan was landing some good jabs. He was landing, you know, he, he was just landing punches in general at a much better rate. Um, I want to say my buddy Jason O'Hanley, shout out to Jason, um, actually sent me a picture showing the strikes. Yeah, so in the first round, uh, they each... So Izzy threw 30 strikes. Jan Blahovic threw 31. And uh, Jan landed 18. Izzy landed 13. So they threw about the exact same amount of strikes. Jan landed five more. And in that after that first round, he was talking about, you know, Izzy outstriking him. I personally didn't see it that way. Um, you know, round two... 23 of 49 for Jan, 21 of 42 for Izzy. Um, personally, watching it the first time, I, I scored that for Izzy. I do plan on going back and rewatching this fight. But, you know, I, I, I scored the second round for Adesanya, and I scored the second or the first round for Jan Blahovic. I scored the second round for Adesanya uh, based off of the more accuracy, like the just the very slim, more accuracy of his strikings and I uh, striking, and I felt that his strikes carried more pop. Uh, but again, I will go back and rewatch this, and my opinion might change. Uh, round three, I think Adesanya, it was his best round. He still was actually outstruck uh, by three strikes. He landed 21 of 42, and Blahovich landed 24 of 42. But I felt like the strikes coming from Adesanya were a little more clear. There was actually a left hook he landed that... Um, while I, again, do not believe it hurt Jan Blachowicz as much as Joe Rogan wanted to say it did, um, it definitely stung Jan Blachowicz and got him thinking. Um, there, was, there was some good back and forth in this fight. It was not a high-paced, action-packed brawl, but it was a very good technical battle between these two fighters. Heading to the third round, I had it tw- or sorry, after the third round, I had it 29-28 Adesanya. I had Adesanya winning rounds two and three, Jan Blachowicz winning round one. Now, round four is when things got interesting. So Adesanya was uh, starting to land more strikes on the feet, and it looked like he was starting to get it going, and then Blahovich landed a takedown. And that was when we knew things were going to get interesting, because looking at these two standing next to each other, you know, Adesanya is a little bit taller, but Blahovich looked massive compared to him as far as frame goes. Definitely outweighed him, you know, Blahovich cut to 205 Israel Adesanya weighed in at 200.5 and definitely didn't cut any weight. This is a guy who was at least 20 to 25 pounds larger than Adesanya on the night of the fight. And it showed. And when he got him down, Adesanya could not move. He tried using explosive movements, and that was just not going to work with a guy as big as Jan Blachowicz. Jan Blachowicz was able to get to side control, land some strikes. He overwhelmed him when he had him on the ground. It wasn't like he landed a barrage of strikes, but he controlled him. Um... It was definitely a solidified round for Jan Blachowicz. So now I had it 2-2 two to two going into the final round. Um, it was a very good fight. I would say you could argue maybe 3-1 to one heading into the final round for Blachowicz, um, which I'll get to in a minute, but I personally felt like it was 2-2. Two to two. Again, I'll go back and rewatch that one because I actually enjoyed it, and I would like to see what I think upon a second viewing. And honestly, I'll probably watch it with the volume off. Um, and I think I've already spoken enough about how the, the commentary in the night annoyed me. And I just realized the fight was so quick that I skipped over Amanda Nunes and Megan Anderson. So I'll get to that in a second. Um, but, you know, round five was more of the same. Israel Adesanya starts out striking him and then gets taken down. And at the end of the fight, Jan Blahovic started unleashing some powerful ground and pound uh End of the fight, very clear to me, 48-47 was how I had it. Uh, the judges actually scored it 49-46, 49-45, and 49-45. I personally didn't see a 10-8 in that fight, uh, but, you know, phenomenal performance for Jan Blahovich, definitely and still, and I cannot wait to see him and Glover Teixeira next. While it was fun to see Israel Adesanya get a shot at the light heavyweight title, I felt that Glover had earned the shot already, and I didn't really 
have as much interest in this fight as I do in Jan Blachowicz versus Glover Teixeira. I think that is going to be a phenomenal fight, and I cannot wait for it. Um, yeah, it's going to be hard to root either way in that fight. I would love to see Glover Teixeira finally reach the pinnacle of the sport. You know, if you want to talk a guy about a guy who deserves it, it's him. But Jan Blachowicz is such a class act and such a phenomenal champion. Izzy was very humble in defeat. Uh, John Jones was talking a lot of trash on you know uh, Twitter throughout the fight. You know he he made the comment about I can't make to wait this. Uh, eat his words, um, and then he you know slowly but surely started tweeting you know about uh, yeah never mind this isn't worth my time and and honestly uh, yeah I, I do believe that and he said anybody who messaged me talking stuff saying that Israel Adesanya was going to beat me. You need to be apologized right now. Uh, I, I wasn't really sure what I thought about that fight beforehand. I did feel like Jones would probably be too massive for him, uh, but honestly, after watching this fight, I do believe that John Jones would probably be able to take him down with relative ease and would likely be able to finish him on the ground. Um, Adesanya likely won't be talking about John Jones anytime soon after this one, and he's definitely going back to middleweight. Uh, middleweight, things are going to be interesting for Israel Adesanya. You know, you got Paula Costa versus Robert Whitaker, and you got Darren Till versus Marvin Vittori. I would lean more towards Marvin Vittori and Darren Till winner getting a title shot than Whitaker versus Paulo Costa. But if Whitaker wins, you know, with how he's done since the Adesanya lost, I could see the argument for him getting another title shot. I think it probably is going to go to whoever has the most impressive performance. I don't personally think Paulo Costa will get a title shot, win, lose, or draw, just because of how recent his loss to Adesanya was and how bad that fight went for him. Uh, Jan Blahovic, incredible job. Uh, can't wait to see him and Glover Teixeira, and I, I think he's a phenomenal champion. And, you know, you want to talk about a complete career turnaround. Started his career in the UFC off 2-4, and four, on the verge of being cut, and I, I want to say is seven and one or eight and one, maybe even nine and one since. Just absolutely phenomenal. Cannot be more happy. It couldn't be happier for the guy. Uh, but now, the absolute dominance of the night: Amanda Nunes versus Megan Anderson. Uh, why not save the best championship performance for last? This was the co-main event, but you know, Megan Anderson, as soon as that fight started, and this is not me trying to insult her, this is just speaks to how amazing Amanda Nunes is. As soon as that fight started, Megan Anderson looked terrified. Uh, she did not look like she was ready to be in there. Nunes landed a powerful shot, rocked her, uh, and then immediately just swarmed her, overwhelmed her, took her back, got her to the ground. It looked like she was going to go for her and a choke, and then ends up locking in a triangle armbar and submits Megan Anderson with the armbar two minutes into the fight. Absolutely incredible. I don't know what more you can do with this woman. Uh, Amanda Nunes is just absolutely the certified women's GOAT. And honestly, as far as all-around GOAT, you can start submitting her into that argument. She is just untouchable anymore. I think, honestly, I think the women's featherweight division is probably done after this. I think she's cleared out that entire division. And I don't see anybody in that division being close enough to her to warrant keeping it around. I, I think this was the last women's featherweight fight. I think that we now have to go to uh, bantamweight. And, you know, there's Holly Holm, who she's beat, fighting Juliana Pena. And then there's Jermaine Durandame, who just beat Juliana Pena. I think the UFC is probably desperately hoping, uh, just based off of parody alone, that Juliana Pena can beat Holly Holm because... Uh, Amanda Nunes knocked Holly Holm out in the first round, and she took a pretty one-sided decision over Jermaine Durandame. There's not many contenders left for Amanda Nunes in either division, and I think that while Pena does not match up very well with Amanda Nunes, I think they're really hoping that's what happens because they want to give her someone new. I, I think the only true fight left for Nunes... Um, is if Shevchenko comes back up to 135. If Shevchenko gets past Jessica Andrade, which I absolutely love that fight, but if Shevchenko can get past Andrade, um, I, I think Shevchenko coming up in a champion versus champion fight is the only truly appealing fight left for Amanda Nunes. Um, I think she's going to be a champion for as long as she feels like fighting. I don't think anybody is going to come close to touching her anytime soon. She is just an absolute savage, and there is no one that comes even close to her. 
just absolutely incredible. I, I can't say anything more. You know, I, I feel for Megan Anderson, but just did not look like she belonged in there with Amanda Nunes. Props to her for showing up, but yeah, Amanda was just levels above her and was too much for her as soon as it started. Well, guys, that is it for me. Uh, thank you guys for tuning into the first ever episode of Monday Morning Mean Event. We will be back next Monday morning to talk about UFC Fight Night Edwards versus Muhammad. So be sure to tune into that. Looking forward to that fight. Don't forget, guys, next Monday and next Saturday, we've got UFC Fight Night Bilal Muhammad versus Leon Edwards. Make sure to tune into that. And then tune in Monday morning for Monday Morning Mean Event. Thank you guys for tuning in and have a great week.